Can you remember some times in your own personal history when you've had a reason to sing and to celebrate? Have you ever had one of these exhilarating moments in church? Let's join Dave Wurtson, our Truth Encounter study leader, and discover what this kind of celebration should mean for our own worship times together. You've all seen that picture where the Navy fella has come back and probably come in through the Statue of Liberty and he has finally arrived home and he meets his girlfriend and there's that marvelous picture of them hugging and kissing there in the streets because there was victory. How many of you can remember a time in your own life where you kind of felt like that? There'd just been a tremendous victory in your life. Maybe your life had been threatened or financially you'd been threatened and you just didn't know what you were going to do and then suddenly you found out that it was all solved. You know, maybe you passed your final exams at college or in high school or maybe back in sixth grade and you didn't think you were going to make it and you finally got that news that you had passed And it was a great victory. We've been talking about a reason to sing. We looked at Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3 and we found out that one of the things that the Lord wants us to do as his people is he wants us to gather together and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and we need to sing to one another. We need to sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We talked last time we were together about psalms and hymns being vertically directed. They're directed in singing praise to our Father, in singing glory to His name, in expressing our love to Him. What we'd like to do is we develop that idea a little bit further. We want to look at one of the reasons that the Lord wants us to sing is to celebrate the great victories. We closed our time looking at a reason to sing to celebrate God's presence among us. Remember we talked about the dedication of Solomon's temple. We talked about this incredible over 200 voice choir. And we talked about the orchestra, all the trumpets that were playing in the percussion section. And we had Israel rejoicing. And it tells us that as they dedicated the temple, the Shekinah glory came down and it filled the place where they were. And one of the reasons that we need to sing is to celebrate the presence of God. The Lord God is among us. But as we celebrate the presence of God, another reason why we need to sing is we need to recount, we need to remember the great victories that he has given to us. And if I were to ask you, if you were a group of Old Testament saints, you were a group of Israelites, and I would say, tell me about the greatest victory of the Old Testament, what would you tell me? You're a bunch of Israelites, you've gathered together, and I said, all right, let's recount some of the great wondrous deeds of the Lord. What would you say was the greatest victory of the Old Testament? Jericho. Somebody mentioned Jericho, all right? That would be a great victory. How many of you think you could rejoice if you were the generation that saw the walls of Jericho go down? The passing through the Red Sea, all right? That would be another great victory. That's the one that we're going to look at in just a minute. What would be some of the other victories from the Old Testament that we could recount as the great wondrous victories of the Lord for us as the people of God? Jericho, the passing through the Red Sea. Gideon and the Midianites. Man, what an incredible victory. Can you imagine being one of those soldiers that, you know, half of them got sent home, more than half. The rest of them just sat there with cornets and trumpets and pitchers 
And in the middle of the night, they busted all these pitchers open and let this blazing light came. The trumpeters blew their alarm and the Midianites went into disarray and the Lord gave a great victory and delivered the people from oppression. The deliverance from Samson, the great strong man, setting foxes' tails on fire and then at the very end of his life, the Lord in his grace, giving him his strength back again and defeating all the Philistines, pulling down the whole temple of Dagon right on their head. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 15 and you see we could have taken all those victories and we didn't even talk about Deborah and Barak. Remember Deborah and Barak winning the great victory over Sisera that you could look at in the book of Judges when all the children of Israel would celebrate together. But let's look at the, probably the ultimate victory in the Old Testament among the people of God. Look at, look at Exodus chapter 15 and to get the scene, let's look at the last verse of chapter 14. It says, and when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, when they saw what? What did they see? Everyone tell me, what did they see? They saw great power. A reason to sing is when you see the great power of the Lord against the Egyptians. It says the people feared, they respected, they saw the awesome power of the Lord... And what did they do? What was their response when they, they saw this awesome delivering power of the Lord? Their response was to do what? It was to trust Him. It was to depend upon Him. You see, God isn't worth trusting if we're not sure that He can hold us up. But the text is telling us that when the children of Israel saw this tremendous power of God that opened up the way through the Red Sea, that they feared it, it was such a powerful event. And we're going to see how they highlight this powerful event in song. It was such a powerful event that they feared it. It was so powerful moving among them, but they realized that God used his power to protect them, to keep them safe. And then they rested at him. They put all their weight upon him. They trusted in him. It says that they feared him, and then they put their trust in him, and they also put their trust in the leadership that the Lord had given them in his servant Moses. Now, how did the people respond? What do you do when you're a nation of two million, you had just been poised on the edge of the sea, Pharaoh's crack battalions in their chariots are bearing down upon you. You waited all night long, and the only thing that protected you was this eerie, awesome, powerful presence of the Shekinah glory of God standing between the chariotry of Pharaoh and yourself. And early in the morning, your leader raises his rod, opens a way through the Red Sea, and you walk through this piled-up water on both sides... And then you look back and sure enough, the Pharaoh and his chariotry are right behind you. I mean, they're high. You can see the breath coming out of the horse's nostrils. And man, you're just feeling them behind you. And suddenly you look back and those walls of water come unpiled. They're no longer stacked up and they crush your enemy before you. What would you feel like? How would you respond if that happened? It would be like being in Dallas maybe late at night and suddenly a gang of hoodlums attacks you and then the police force arrives just in the right time and they're able to protect you. How would you feel? Well, we've got an entire nation that feels like that. And how did they express? How did they talk about? How did they share together that victory? That's what we have in chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, Then Moses and the Israelites, what did they do? Tell me. 
they sang this song to the Lord. Now, I want you to ask yourself, how do you think an Israelite would feel if they gathered together with us? You know, I think there would be some Israelites, if they sat down with us and we start getting together early in the morning and we're trying to get going, and they would be fair to us. But I think sometimes an Israelite would stand up and say, you know, you people really need to learn how to do this. You know, you guys, you guys have incredible victories that you have in God, which we're going to get to eventually. But I think an Israelite would just suddenly stand up and say, you guys are singing, come ye thankful people, come and praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the God of creation. And I think an Israelite would raise his hand and say, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, I don't think you people know who the Almighty, the God of creation is. Let me tell you a story. And then they would tell you about their deliverance through the Red Sea. And they would tell you that after we were delivered and we were safe, thousands upon thousands of us gathered together, and together as a nation we sang, and let me share the words of the song that we sing. Look what, look what they sang. It says, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Why did they sing to the Lord? Because he was highly exalted. And how did he demonstrate his high and exalted character? The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Now you need to realize that in that song, that is the repeating phrase. As we go through this recounting of God's great victory, as we talk about the supremacy of God among the people, among all the nations, and among all the gods, and then as we recount and look forward to what God's going to do in the future, what I want you to feel is thousands of people that probably had Moses and some other leaders that would lead them in the, in the verse of a song, but the repeated chorus is, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider, he drowned in the sea. In fact, if you look over a little bit further in the passage, look at verse 20 of this chapter, so you have kind of the setting of it. It says, Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women following her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them. What did she sing? Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. So what you want to feel is that the poet, the musician that's leading these thousands upon thousands of people would give the verse of the song that we're going to go over in just a second. But the women with their tambourines moving among the people, they're singing and they're dancing, and the recurring thunderous phrase that they keep singing again and again and again is, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. And he's demonstrated his supremacy because the horse and his rider they have hurled into the sea. So some of you that are musicians, some of you that are artistic, and you love that tremendous movement of a crowd and the buildup of repeating a phrase. And it's a phrase that just pounds the message of God and his victory into his heart. I want you to feel what was going on into this passage. So that's the thunderous refrain they come back to again and again and again. But then they develop it further. The leader in Israel, maybe Moses himself, would sing these words. The Lord is my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. Now, as the children of Israel sang these words, do you think that they really believed that the Lord was their strength? You think they sang that with conviction? Why? Because in an incredible way, the Lord had demonstrated his strength. These people had been right on the edge with God. 
These people had faced and looked death right into the face. They were right on the edge with God. And they found out that the Lord was their strength. And when you have that kind of deliverance, your natural response is to respond in singing. It says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. In their context, they're talking about a very specific salvation. He delivered us through the Red Sea. He delivered us from our enemies. They say, he is my God and I will praise him. He is my father's God and I will exalt him. Now, what's the meaning of that? These words are incredibly insightful into the belief system of ancient Israel. See, what they're saying is the reason the Lord defended us The reason the Lord used his strength for us is because God made a promise to our fathers. It began with a promise to Abraham that you've all been familiar with. We've been going through the book of Deuteronomy. God made a promise to Father Abraham that he would become a great nation. And as they gathered together after this incredible deliverance from Pharaoh's army, they realized that whole promise had just been held into the balances. If Pharaoh's armies would have been able to come into the children of Israel and totally demolish them and wipe them out and then take a remnant back into Egypt and then just infiltrate into the whole culture of Egypt, the whole promise of God would have been over. And yet God keeps his promises. God made a promise to Father Abraham, you're going to become a great nation. I'm going to take you down into Egypt for four generations, and then I'm going to bring you out with a mighty hand. God had delivered and given all of that revelation to Abraham. And now the children of Israel are realizing that the one who fought for us is the God of our fathers, the God of Father Abraham. They would be reminded, it's the father of Father Jacob. This is the God of Father Jacob who appeared to him at Bethel where Jacob saw the staircase and was able to even see the Son of God at the top of that staircase. They would be reminded of all of those accounts that had been pounded into their soul. So when they sing about this victory that they just won, they put it in the context. It's This victory is all based upon the promises of God. God has kept His promise. We were just on the edge. Our enemies could have destroyed us, but they didn't because God made a promise to our fathers. It says the Lord is a warrior. In fact, the phrase there is literally this. God is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now, that's a heavy phrase. What do we mean that the God of the Old Testament is a man of war? We often use that phrase in our culture for those old English battleships, a a man of war. What do we mean in this context that God is a man of war? In fact, some people have even said that there's a gigantic contrast between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a God of war. He's a God of naturalistic dedication just to the children of Israel. And he is an ancient God that needs to be developed with some progressive thinking. And we need to have the God of forgiveness and the God of all the nations in the New Testament. What do you think about that? Well, I think we need to put this in context. What had God been doing for the last several months with King Pharaoh? Can anybody remember what did God do for month after month with this Egyptian king? He tried to get this Egyptian king to let the people go. Why did God want the people of Israel to be able to go? They started out with a simple request. Let us go that we might worship our God. 
Let us get out of Egypt. Let us just go into the wilderness so that we can worship. Now, how many of you think that's an irrational, unbelievably bad request? No, it's an easy request. All that Pharaoh had to do is say yes, but he hardened his heart stubbornly and strongly. He said, no, no, no. And God began to hammer away at his soul, bringing one plague after another. And again and again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, what the scripture is bringing out here is that as, as we shake our fist in the face of God, as we break his commandments and we break his laws and we break his principles, he is a man of war. You cannot take him for granted. You cannot say that he's like George Burns and, oh God, he's this nice grandfatherly being that smokes cigars and gets along with everybody. That's not the God of the biblical revelation that's revealed in Exodus chapter 15. Remember, this chapter started out with God's people fearing his power. The Egyptian army, the essential quintessent army of the ancient Near East at this time had just been demolished. It would be like the elite, the elite of the Nazi corps being snuffed out in an incredible natural disaster in the heart of World War II. That's what was happening. And that's what the people realized. That's what they understood was the the essence of God's character. He was a man of war. Now, today we're living in a time of grace, and we're going to find out in just a minute, as we talk about a New Testament song of deliverance, we're going to find out that we're not living with a God of war right now who snuffs at his enemies and and will just annihilate someone that rebels against him. But we're going to rapidly move at the end of time into another time of history where the whole world is going to divide again. And there's going to be those that continually, God, just like with the plagues of Egypt, God is going to again beat down upon those who rebel against him. And he's going to try to soften them up by disciplining them and sending terrible plagues. But if they resist, if they turn away from him, he's a man of war. I think it's very important for me to realize in my own life that my Father in heaven is not just a God to be trifled with and to be treated lightly to be ignored, to act as if he'll never discipline me. There needs to be that reverence and that respect for him that he's a man of war. You see, we can think of a man of war being someone that's an enemy. And if we're against the plan of God, and if we're rejecting God's principles, then the man of war is against us. But if you're on the other side of that, if you're the one that's facing the tyranny, if you're the one that's facing the person that won't let you worship, if you're the one that's under this terrible opposition and you feel you're going to lose your life and then this man of war arrives and he's there to provide victory for you and and deliverance for you, then the man of war is a great deliverer. And that's what the children of Israel are describing. They're saying that as we live in a fallen world, In a fallen world, there is terrible opposition against the principles of God, against the plan of God, against God's rules and regulations. And what the scripture is telling us here is that God is still a man of war. And he is to be reckoned with. He's not just to be laughed at. And often he will be very gracious and allow there to be a great time of rebellion and rejection. But eventually, there can be the thunderous waters of the Red Sea. That's a hard idea for me to really comprehend and understand. 
But it's very important from the scriptures to understand that God is a man of war. If I love him, and if I have become his child through my faith in Jesus Christ, if I have been born again into his family, then his conquering power becomes delivering power for me. But if I'm opposed to him, if I've never invited him into my life, then I need to respect the God who had the kind of power that could open the Red Sea. We read a little bit further. Moses says this, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. And the poet just heaps these marvelous images of how the Lord, through that powerful east wind, piled up these gigantic walls of water so the children of Israel could go through on dry land. The enemy boasted. Now, so I give us an account. The account I just read gives us kind of a picture of the historical thing that happened. All through the night, that east wind blew. And then the Lord divided the sea. Now we have the Egyptians, the enemies of the Israelites. What were they saying? What were the Pharaoh, what were Pharaoh and his army saying as they saw God do this great miracle? The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. In other words, here's the taunts of the enemy. I want you to see the reality of of the word of God here. In our own culture right now, we're moving into, into terrible times of violence. And we can think of the terrible bloodshed and the anger and the hatred that evil people can bring against others. And it's easy to throw our hands up in exasperation and say, man, where does all this come from? We need to realize that from the beginning of Adam and Eve's sin, that this cruel violence was unleashed on planet Earth. And here you have an example of this. As a born-again believer, it's very important for you to realize that there are people that will boast, I'm going to pursue my enemies, I'm going to stalk them like a hunter would stalk its prey, I'm going to overtake them, and then I'm going to divide the spoils. In other words, I'm going to steal all of their belongings, and then I'm going to gorge myself on them. It pictures the Egyptians making a feast of the people of Israel. How many of you would like an enemy talking to you like that? Not too hot, huh? How many of you think you had a rough week? Now, these people had a rough week. They really did. These people were facing the most intense kind of opposition ever imaginable. Only a few of us have, in our physical life, experienced this kind of threat. But we need to realize that it is part of life. It's part of human existence. It could happen to us. Those of you that have gone off to war and faced an enemy, you know this kind of wrath. You know this kind of anger. You know, this kind of fear, this kind of dread that could come. One of the things I want you to get out of our time together is the pulse-beating reality of the Word of God. Because we sit in our churches and we're half asleep, we're trying to get in gear, and we're trying to understand what the Word of God is saying, and our lives can seem very comfortable. 
When the Paul said in reality, the word of God is totally different than that. It's, it's about a real relationship with God. It's about facing real dangers in life. It's about handling tremendous threats against our own life and asking our Lord to provide a victory. God's Old Testament people have so much to teach us about an honest, real, open relationship with God. A congregation of believers who risk getting this real with their God will learn to cry out when they are in trouble. But they will also have the incredible moments of victory when the resurrection power of Jesus overwhelms the evil one today and brings victory. A church that taps into this kind of power and reality will hardly be a boring place to be. Dave will be giving us more reasons to sing next time, so invite a friend to join our discussion.